Hi, I'm Chris Sprouse, Speaker of the Florida House and former prosecutor. From policy briefs to white papers, court cases to brutal police records, no matter my role, reading has been a central part of my mission to defend American values. But this isn't just my job. Reading books is a personal passion, and getting to know the authors behind the ideas on the page is one of my favorite pastimes. The Red, White, and Blue podcast is now in session. Welcome back, listeners. Today, we're talking with best-selling author and political commentator Michael Knowles about his book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, in which he tackles how free speech has been redefined by the left and what conservatives can do to fight back. Michael Knowles is the celebrated host of The Michael Knowles Show at The Daily Wire, The Book Club at PragerU, and Verdict with Ted Cruz, as well as the author of the number one best-selling blank book, Reasons to Vote for Democrats. Listeners, I've always enjoyed listening to Michael Knowles, and I believe that he's one of the most persuasive conservative commentators out there today. Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down with Michael to talk about his new book, about political correctness and its impact on American values, and what we as conservatives can do differently to take back the truth. Join us now. Michael, thanks for being with me today. Speaker Sprouse, thank you so much for having me. So we had a, a, we're coming off a huge legislative session, lots of topics. What I think is most interesting is I've read your book about two months ago, uh, Speechless, and there's so much in your book um, that relates to what we did during the legislative session, issues that you know, you're an expert on, that you wrote so eloquently about and I want to talk about. But before we begin, give, give us some context about what the book Speechless is about and why you decided to write it. Well, thank you so much. I'm really honored that you could read it. And uh, you, you in Florida, you in the Florida legislature are absolutely leading the charge on these issues in, in America. It's just so wonderful to see. And obviously the voters support it. And it's exactly the direction conservatives need to move in. And the fact that woke corporations and woke ruling class elites hate it is uh, just another feather in your cap. So really, it's really great stuff. The reason I wrote the book is, be well, one, I had... Uh, published a book previously. It was called Re Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a Comprehensive Guide. There weren't any words in the book. And uh, the publishers came to me and they said, we want you to write another book. I said, I think you're using the word another somewhat liberally here uh, because I have not actually written a book. And so they, they kept sending me these ideas. And I said, no, I, I don't. I'm not just going to write a book to write a book. I'm, I want to write a book when I feel there's some way I can help turn the conversation, help turn the culture a little. And it struck me now, I guess, about two years ago, it was this issue of free speech because the left was completely attacking our free speech and the left was manipulating language through political correctness, through wokeness and cancel culture to, to reshape our politics. But the right wasn't really fighting back or the way in which they were fighting back seemed only to make the matter worse. It, it was this issue of political correctness that we've heard about for 30 years. And I thought, well, the harder we fought against it, the worse things have gotten. So what's gone wrong here? And I think what's gone wrong is that the, the right misunderstood what this battle was about. Cancel culture, wokeness, PC, whatever you want to call it. We have thought that it's a battle between free speech on one hand and censorship on the other. And we've got to support the free speech and, and not the censorship. But it's not really that. I think it's really a battle between competing sets of standards. I think that all cultures are going to have taboos. All cultures are going to have standards, things you can't do, things you're not encouraged to do. There have always been whole swaths of speech that have been off limits in America and elsewhere. And the founding fathers 
were not only fine with that, but they actually encouraged that sort of thing. And I think what the left has done is it's not that they censor us all exclusively, it's that they've totally upended our standards. It's that it's if we're going to have a country, we need to speak the same language. We we need to know know what words mean. And and so what the left has done, and I guess this pertains to some of the work you've been doing in the Florida legislature, is that they just change all the meanings of the words. So now we can't even agree on the meaning of the word man or woman. I sort of wish I had waited to publish my book because now we have a Supreme Court nominee who who says that she is unable to define the word woman. This is someone who's going to be. Uh, interpreting our constitution and, and laws for us. So uh, that I think is the issue. And, and ultimately the problem I saw is that free speech in the abstract means nothing to people who have nothing to say. And so it's not enough merely for conservatives to defend this abstract kind of free speech. We need to know what it is we're defending. We need to have a not merely a procedural kind of politics, but a substantive moral vision. What is it? that we want to teach? What is it that we want to say? What is it that we want to conserve? Yeah, no, that's great. And I, I, I love how you talk about, you know, the meaning, the meaning of words, right? But I, I think what's important for people who haven't read your book yet is to realize that this isn't just a critique of culture, right? There's been a lot of critiques, a lot of books written of, you know, here's the, the criticisms of the left, or here's, here's the criticisms of conservatives. This is very well researched. It's thoughtful. You really lay out the case. And when you talk about words, what was helpful for me from the very onset is you gave examples, right? So someone says, um, I'm going to go, a young lady says, I'm going to go powder my nose or I'm going to go use the restroom. Yeah. Everybody at the table, if you're having dinner, realizes that they're going to go use the toilet. Yeah. But it's kind of impolite to say it that way. Right. So even though it doesn't mean powder my nose, everybody understands what it does mean. And it's also, it's not a lie. Yeah. And, and versus you kind of give this other example of, which I love because I was a gang and homicide prosecutor for a number of years, of a criminal versus a justice-involved person, right? which sounds like, wow, you're involved in the justice system. Like, that's awesome. Like, really, you just knocked over a convenience store. So, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting how you begin to lay out that case of this isn't about a politeness of being polite. This is about fundamentally altering what words mean, whether it's man or woman or criminal and justice-involved person. And, and what does that mean? I mean, how when you look through sort of the, the language and lexicon of, of these words and the changes, what is it kind of the more offensive things that you have found and how they're seeping their way into, into our language, into our culture? Well, I, I love your example of the, the justice-involved person because this, of course, means the justice-involved person would be a cop, would be a judge, <laughs> would be a prosecutor, maybe. Uh, a criminal, whatever a criminal is, he is not a justice-involved person. Or you, you hear sometimes illegal aliens are referred to as undocumented Americans. Well, whatever they are, they're not Americans. That's sort of the defining feature of what <laughs> an alien, an illegal alien is. Uh, but I'm all for politeness, uh, you know, and, and typically the left uses this sleight of hand to say that if you don't use political correctness, you're being impolite. I will not refer to a woman of a certain age as an old hag. I don't see any reason to do that. We all know what, and she really is a woman of a certain age, by the way, but, but I'm not going to lie. And now the left is forcing us to lie. You see this most notably with the pronouns. I guess this is what I find so offensive, is we are now told that if you refer to a man who thinks that he's a woman as a man, that you are misgendering that person. Now, of course, the only people misgendering this person are the people who are pretending that he is a woman. And, and it's not even merely that we have to tolerate his own self-delusion. It's that we are being made to lie. 
We are being forced to lie. And that's something that's intolerable. But it's, it's not just an accident that this has happened. Sometimes on this pronoun issue, you'll hear people say, especially on the left, they'll say, oh, who cares? Oh, what's the big deal? Okay, so the man wants to go by she. Who cares? Well, the left cares. <laughs> the left seems to care a whole lot. They're the ones who are trying to change the bathrooms and the sports leagues and, and the pronouns. So if it's not a big deal, why is the left spending so much time and money and energy on it? Well, because it matters a great deal. Words not only uh, allow us to communicate with one another, but they shape the way that we view the world. When you, when you hear the phrase, justice involved person, you think of a good guy. And when you hear the phrase criminal, you, you don't, you think of someone who's committed a crime. So you, you, we've really got to be precise in language. And, and this is something that the, the left planned out historically. You know, in the book, I trace back about 100 years of this political campaign. It goes back to people who are now called the cultural Marxists or the neo-Marxists. It's funny, that phrase in and of itself is now called a conspiracy theory, even though it's a very well-known intellectual movement that has existed. And they don't want it to be super public. It becomes a conspiracy theory. Yeah. That's right. I, I've been told now the difference between the truth and a conspiracy theory is about six to 12 months. It's really accelerated recently. But there, there were followers of Karl Marx who were dismayed that in the 19th century, the Marxist revolution didn't happen. The workers of the world did not unite. They did not overthrow the capitalist oppressor class and throw off their chains. And what people like Antonio Gramsci, for instance, and uh, others of the this intellectual movement, the Frankfurt School in, in uh, America, what they realized was that the, the reason that the revolution didn't work is because the conservatives had cultural hegemony. So it, it turned out that the poor oppressed proletariat didn't feel so oppressed. They liked their culture and their family and their neighborhoods and their political system. So what Gramsci in particular, but the rest of them too, sought to do was gain that cultural hegemony. And so they would infiltrate notably the academy and higher education and lower education, but they would infiltrate the media. They would, they would transform the way that we used language the way that we viewed ourselves. And uh, sometimes this is called the long march through the institutions. That was the phrase of Rudy Dutschka, who was a student radical who, who had learned from Herbert Marcuse of the Frankfurt School and from Antonio Gramsci. Uh, it refers to Mao's cultural revolution. It, it really does have communist roots. I don't, I don't want to blame the commies for everything, but <laughs> right. they were responsible for a lot of bad things. And uh, you, you can see this flower over the course of generations. And so now we're at a point where it would appear that the left has cultural hegemony. And so something that you, you have done so wonderfully in Florida is you've, you've not fallen for the trap. You've not taken the bait. Uh, what, the, what the left did, especially in the schools in the 60s and 70s, is they said, look, we're, we don't want to teach radicalism. We just want openness. We just want you, we want liberation of the curriculum to open people's minds. Uh, the free speech movement took place at Berkeley, which is now one of the most hostile campuses to free speech. And it was always disingenuous because there's no such thing as a totally open curriculum. There's no, you can't have total free speech in the sense that words have to have meanings and, we, and you've only got so many weeks in a semester. So you have to agree as to what truth is, what, what, if something is actually true. Well, that's the, that's the problem. If you're, if you're in a math class, the teacher doesn't have the academic freedom to teach you that two plus two equals seven, right? You need to teach the truth. And every second that a student wastes reading Robin D'Angelo's critical race theory text or reading some transgender radicalism is a second that they're not reading Shakespeare, that they're not reading real history, that they're not studying math. And so 
actually, if you want to liberate people's minds, if you want to defend liberal education and create free citizens, you've actually got to close that curriculum around the truth. And, and it's, wh it's why you're catching in the Florida legislature all the slings and arrows right now is because you've honed in on one of the central parts of the left's strategy and, and you're attacking it. And the left doesn't like that very much. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I, I'm so glad you talked about the historical roots of this, because one of the things you talk about in the book, in addition to laying out what you just discussed, is you know, they, what they realize, these Marxist thinkers, right, and now the left and the, the organizations like BLM and others, is that, you know, who controls the words, as you write in the book, controls the culture. If you control the language, you control the culture. And I, I think, to your point about conservatives earlier, and I put myself, you know, several years ago in this category, right, it, we thought it was enough to be just committed to speech. You know, make, let's make the argument, you make yours, I'll make mine, you know, may the best person win. And the reality is when the, when the rules of the game either don't exist anymore or they've been changed so fundamentally, we're no longer sort of having the, the, the same conversation. You know, the other people become sort of the master of the conversation. You know, you, you talk about this, um, which I, I really love this quote. Um, in the book you say, free speech cannot be an open plain, nor can it be a jungle. It must be a delicately manicured garden. And I, I think the word picture is helpful here. What I, what I guess I would ask is, as you move, as conservatives move away from this idea of just sort of free speech for everyone, um, realizing what the left is doing, what does it mean in the context of speech to have a well manicured garden? Well, a great guidepost, uh, as conservatives often will tell you, is what has worked in the past, what has worked out well in the past. So we're, we're living in a culture now that is, has been quite degraded by the very movements that we're talking about. And so we're probably not gonna be using our unfettered reason exclusively to make sense of this. But if you look at American history, there have been lots of prohibitions on speech and, and most of them are still on the books. They're just very rarely enforced. Prohibitions on obscenity. Just at the end of the Bush administration, Bush two, uh, the United States threw a pornographer in jail strictly for obscenity, not for rape, not for any, just for obscenity. And now we mock these prohibitions on obscenity. But you, I think you got to ask yourself, sort of like Chesterton's fence, you know, you, you ask yourself before you tear something down, ask why is it there in the first place? Why do we have these prohibitions on obscenity? Why is obscenity not protected speech? Well, one reason is that obscenity far from liberating you, actually enslaves you to your base appetites, to your desires. A lot of this comes down to a misunderstanding of what liberty is. The, the founding fathers said that if you abuse your liberty to licentiousness, you're gonna lose your country. So what's the difference? Well, licentiousness is the lower will. People have two wills. They have the higher will and the lower will. This is why St. Paul says, the things that I wanna do, I don't do. And the things that I don't wanna do, I do. This is when, when you say, I want to eat that last slice of pizza, but my higher will says, I'm gonna feel terrible if I eat. I wanna have that last drink, but my higher will says no. And, and so what uh, obscene material and prurient material does is it appeals strictly to your lower will. Even if your higher will is saying, no, it's wrong to look at that. It's a waste of time. It's not good for me. <laughs> it's not a naughty thing to do. And so liberty is, is on that higher plane. The whole purpose of liberal education is to tamp down our base passions. It's to make sense of our freedom so that we can be free citizens and actually govern ourselves. Well, if we want to live in a country of self-government, We've got to have self-government within ourselves too. And that means practicing the virtues and, and tamping down the vices. And what's so amazing, and I'm, I'm just focusing on this one issue of obscenity. There are many other parts of speech that we could 
delicately manicure too. But I, I focus on the obscenity one because until very, very recently, there was total consensus about this. It, during the Clinton administration, you had majorities of Republicans and Democrats and Bill Clinton supporting limiting obscene and prurient material on the internet. We talk about the Communications Decency Act because of its Section 230, which gives certain legal uh, privileges to big tech companies. The Communications Decency Act is about communications decency <laughs> to, to regulate porn on the internet. There was the Child Online Protection Act. It went even further than the, the Communications Decency Act. And they were largely struck down in the courts. The meat of, the, of those laws was struck down in the courts based on, I think, a preposterous understanding of the Constitution and American legal history. But at the time, even at the time, there were majorities in both parties who supported this kind of thing. And so I think we all recognize it. And, and you, you really see it when it comes to the schools, the fact that there are now outright obscene and profane materials in the schools. Not, we're not just talking about health class. We're talking about actual pornography being assigned to students. And parents are saying, wait, this is way too far. Not only is this not expanding my child's education, it's actually destroying my child's education. And since nothing is unbounded in this whole world, maybe we need to reset some of those parameters. You know, we used to orient society toward what is good, you know, what's virtuous, what kind of society do we do good and avoid evil is kind of the basic uh, task of any society. Well, we used to orient it toward the good and the true and the beautiful. Now it seems that we orient it almost exclusively toward the bad and the ugly and, and the wicked. And so perhaps we need to uh, flip that. The, the left has a very clear view, a substantive view of wh where it wants to take society. And the right hasn't had that for some time. We shrug our shoulders. We, we can't say what's good. Well, someone will say, I support this good policy. And you'll hear a relativistic conservative say, well, maybe what's good for you isn't good for me. Well, maybe that, you know, and, and they'll shrug their shoulders. Well, if, if we do not have that substantive political vision, if we can't say this is bad, we don't want it. This is good, we do want it. Then, then we've already conceded. Then we've already lost the culture is just one sort of small point, but I think it illustrates it. A couple of years ago, there was a, now now he's sort of a liberal columnist, but he was a conservative columnist, David French. And he he had this debate with another conservative, so Rabbi Mari, and they were debating drag queen story hour. This is people going into elementary schools and libraries and twerking for little kids, you know, drag queens. And David said that this has to be tolerated and permitted because it's a blessing of liberty. It's one of the blessings of liberty that you hear about in the Constitution. And uh, I think the founding fathers are rolling over in their grave yeah, right. thought of that. But, but David's point, to be as fair as I can to it, is that if we tell drag queens they can't twerk at the library, why they might tell us we can't go to church on Sunday. And this hypothetical fails for a couple of reasons. One, one, they've already been telling us for two years we can't go to church right, on Sunday, right. COVID was. Uh, but, but two, if we are really at the point where we do not have the rational faculties and the moral conscience to discern between a, a pervert twerking for a toddler and a pastor preaching the gospel, if we really can't tell the difference, then we are not capable of self-government, which, which requires us to, to make those distinctions. And so I, I think the right needs to gather its courage and its clarity back again, or we'll already have lost the culture. I couldn't agree more. You know, we, we just coming through this in Florida, as you know, during the session, we passed a parental notification bill dealing with, you know, children. And, I, and it's actually hard for me to say this because it sounds so ridiculous. You know, we come out with a bill that says, hey, in, in pre-K through uh, third grade, you know, five and six-year-olds, 
there can't be classroom-led instruction on transgender ideology or sexual orientation. And, and also, if you, if you put a child this, – this happened in Florida on a number of occasions. If you put a child on a gender transition plan and say, we're going to call you by different pronouns and things like that while you're at school, and then I'm going to check the box that says, we're not going to tell your parents because the, 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 the counselor and the student, the child, have agreed to that. So we roll out this bill. And of course, you saw, you know, you saw how it was labeled in sort of the liberal media, corporate media, and they just everybody came after us. And what was interesting about it was there came a point at which, at first, I just thought, oh gosh, they're being lazy, and they just didn't read the bill. And then at some point, and your book sort of backs this up, right? At some point, it occurred to me, no, it's not that they're being lazy, and it's not that they can't read the four pages of what the bill actually does, which just protects parents from what's happening at school with their kids. It's that they want it to happen. And this week we're at the bill signing. Governor Sanders puts up this poster, and it's the the gender bread man, and it's a classroom instruction about gender, and you know boys can be boys can be girls, girls can be boys, etc. In you know kind of in that in that tender age period. So to your point, I think one thing that we've learned here in Florida, whether it's through that bill or last year, this is before you know uh, Thomas, you know the swimmer wins the national championship for swimming. You know we did the Protect Women's Sports Act last year. You know and at first we're sort of you know bullied immediately by the media saying how we're terrible human beings. But then the reality is the vast majority of Americans expect that there's going to be some level of framework when their kids are in first grade, second grade, third grade, or if that their daughter works their entire life to be a world-class swimmer, that she actually gets to swim against you know, other girls uh, during the competition. Are you seeing this play out in other parts of the country? I mean, it seems to me that once we push back and sort of put the points on the board as far as the victory is concerned, people move on immediately uh, you know, to the next thing. And I think it could be sort of a framework for the rest of the country to push back on these false narratives. It absolutely is. The, the eyes of the country are on Florida right now because Florida really is leading the way on this. The, the line from the left, especially on this issue of radical sexual ideologies being taught to kindergartners, the line is, it's not happening and it's good that it is. That's what they're telling you. They're telling out of one side of your mouth, they're saying this is not an issue, it's not happening anywhere, and it's also really important that it continues to happen. They made the same point with critical race theory. They couldn't make up their minds. Critical race theory is not being taught in our schools, and it's very important and wonderful that it is. Well, which is it? Obviously, it's happening, and that they were caught with their pants down, so to speak. So the law in Florida that I suspect is going to be emulated by virtually every conservative-led state in the country it is really important because you've got every power structure against you, except for the voters who overwhelmingly right. support it, not just in Florida, but around the country. We had Daily Wire did a poll, it was over 60% support among voters. So, so obviously this is important and popular stuff. The, the question that, that comes up is one of motivation. Why on earth is the left so focused on exposing these kids to weird sexual ideologies. Why are they so demanding of that? And it's because sex is very important to human nature. Sex is a very important driver of a lot of our behavior. And so if you can mold and transform a, a fundamental part of your nature from a very, very young age, then people are going to be much easier to control and shape later on in their lives. This is not just some tinfoil hat theory. As I, I trace in the book, this has been a movement on the left for a long time. There was a very strange, eccentric sociologist named Wilhelm Reich, who was a popular thinker in the 1930s, uh, who had this theory that all problems in the world are caused by a lack of orgasms. 
you know, war, cancer, disease, all sorts of things. He, he had this idea that one would have to sit in a basically just a wooden box that he built called the orgone accumulator to uh, get the vital power of sex or whatever. Now it sounds crazy. Very prominent leftist intellectuals bought into this. Norman Mailer, J.D. Salinger, Woody Allen made fun of it as the orgasmatron. But these, uh, Bernie Sanders wrote essays defending this idea that children had to be exposed to sexuality at a much younger age and that this would be very liberating. He's run away from those essays since then, but you can still find them in the Vermont Freeman. So th this has been around for a long time and it's it's rearing its head again. It's It's all about education. You know, education is not just reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's ethics. It's how you view the world. It's how you view, view yourself. And, and so in a way, you can never get religion or morality or ethics out of the classroom. It's not possible because we're raising people up to know the difference between good and bad and, and right and wrong. And that, that's why the left is so intensely focused on that. And, and it's why when, when you look at a classroom, you're looking at a crystal ball. You're looking at your country in 20 years. There, a lot of conservatives tried to delude themselves with a good, good deal of copium, I believe. And they said that once the, these woke students get out into the real world, then reality will hit them and they'll drop all their craziness. The opposite happened. Those woke students of 10 years ago went out and transformed the world. And now they're, they're in boardrooms and now they're in Congress and, and they're, they're running the show. So it's very important that we engage in that battle. And if we merely lie down and we accept some preposterous notion of academic freedom that says that teachers can indoctrinate your five-year-old to transgenderism, academic freedom, by the way, a notion that the conservative movement was launched to oppose. The, the first big book on this was William F. Buckley Jr.'s God and Man at Yale, subtitle, The Superstitions of Academic Freedom. If we just throw up our hands and say, teachers, teach whatever you want, uh, then, then we're seeding the whole culture because the left knows what it wants and, and the right needs to answer that question too. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. I, when, you, when you talk about the sort of introduction of sex and this whole conversation, it makes me think back, you know, you've, you know you've read a good book when you then have to go get two other books, you know, that are that are referenced in the book. So I, I read I read your book, and I immediately go back and say, gosh, it's been years since I read um, Huxley's Brave New World or Orwell's 1984. So I immediately go out and I buy them. And, and to your point about Huxley that you make in the book, he uses that right. Here's here's art at the time, but he's making the political point that this will be weaponized as a way to become the master and to control the society, um, which I think is is evident in what in what you just talked about. I, I love what you talk about with the kids, right? Like we do as conservatives think, hey, you know, eventually the real world, when they get to their job, is going to correct, uh, correct them. And I think it was Jonathan Haidt who maybe had written this this way, but we're not preparing the students for the road. We're preparing the road for right. the students. And we're basically saying you get to keep all your stuff that you had, your safe spaces and your ideas at, at university. And when you get to the corporate boardroom, we're just going to make the corporate – uh, entities sort of bow to the will of this ideology, which I think we've seen play out. We happen, you know, we're having with Disney here in the state of Florida in the wake of these legislations. So, I mean, how do you, as how do conservatives begin to push back on sort of the corporate entities who are using their corporate influence, their corporate power? to engage in this conversation, hijack language, and change it as a way to do really two things. One, control culture, but probably more in their self-interest to sort of appease you know, the, the activists and the, and the groups that are engaging in what amounts to political terrorism to get them to come out with these statements and ideas. 
Well, we're going to need to throw away some of our stale old talking points. You know, all slogans are wrong because they simplify ideas and they usually oversimplify ideas. And politics takes principles that are true, but applies them to changing circumstances. And one of the slogans and talking points that we've had for some time on the right is that anything government does is bad and anything that business does is good. And so in many ways, we've been shills for gigantic, often multinational, almost always woke corporations that hate our guts and want to destroy our way of life. And that doesn't seem like a winning political strategy. Even that word political, what, the word political just means public. It just means things that we're sort of all doing together. What's the republic? It's the stuff that we have together. And, and so when Google, is Google a private company? Uh, sort of. Is it a is it the government? Well, it's got a lot of ties to the government. It's not quite the government, though. When Google and Facebook and Twitter go out and deplatform, as they did in January of 2020, the duly elected sitting president of the United States, that is a political act. <laughs> That's one of the most striking political acts in the history of our country. But forget President Trump for a second. When Google controls 90% of the flow of information around our country, just for private citizens. That too is by definition a political act. We live in a republic, or at least we did. I think for now we still sort of do. And, and in a republic, in a self-government, the way that we govern ourselves is through speech. So if you control the speech, you control not just one aspect of society, you control the entire political order. And we, the people, still have something of the political right to go in and, and maybe to take some of that power back, but we need to do it. We need to assert that political right. There's nothing conservative or good or patriotic about letting woke corporations destroy our country and take away all of our rights. Quite the opposite. If we want to conserve our country and our liberties and our rights and our traditions, we need to assert that power and bring those woke corporations back into line. I love free markets. I love private enterprise, but we don't make idols out of those things. The point of free markets and private enterprise is to have a good country. It's an instrument. Even when you hear this phrase in the constitution, the blessings of liberty, there we see that liberty is instrumental to the blessings of liberty. It's, liberty is a wonderful thing, but it has a point. It has a purpose. In the, the Federalist, James Madison writes that justice is the end of government. Justice, meaning to give to everyone what he, he or she deserves. Justice is the end of government and must, it always has been, it always will be, and that must be pursued. So we need to keep those ends in line. I'm, I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton, who said that the modern world has not gone crazy because it's so bad, but in some ways it's gone crazy because it's so good. It's because it takes one virtue and blows it out of proportion to the exclusion of the others. And so we need to keep these things in line not just uh, you know liberty say but justice temperance temperance that's a good one isn't it moderation prudence that's a good one too and, and uh, we need to recognize that there are limits and we, we need to set those boundaries as in a garden i i love that you know and, it's, and you approach these issues particularly from a you know a legislature's standpoint it's really difficult so i had a i had a good conversation with our mutual friend ben shapiro months ago before session started and we're talking about CRT. We're talking about what the corp, you know, corporations are doing. It's like, how do you go at this in a way that really gets to the center of the issue? So we, we passed a bill, uh, and, and Ben gave great feedback, but I think it's consistent with your book uh, called the Individual Freedoms Bill. And basically said, look, whether you are in K-12 or you are in a corporation, you can't treat somebody differently because they're a particular race or because they're a particular sex. You can't blame them. 
uh, for the sins of someone else who happens to be the same race or the same sex as them. You can't engage in training that teaches people that they are less or more because of their race or because of their sex. By the way, none of what, no one has actually stood up to me and said, I object to this line about, about this. That's not happened yet. But, but we put that in there, and we put that in there in, in the corporate aspect, what you're talking about, and said, so, look, if, you're, if your employer forces you to go to a training that says you're worse just by nature of the color and pigmentation of your skin or you're worse because of your gender, then we're going to allow you to bring uh, a suit for a hostile work environment just like you would in sort of any other context as a way to push back. Um, so we've been engaging in that space, um, I think, in a way to really target those issues in a way that lifts up the individual. Uh, before we go, Mike, I want to kind of wrap up with this. You, you talk a lot about how this left ideology goes after the family. They focus on the individual, um, try to blow that out of proportion to to push out families and sort of the idea of the nuclear family. This year we passed uh, a bill that was targeted at tackling fatherlessness um, and all the ailments that, that in society that's connected to. What have you seen as sort of the, the concerted effort to undo the cultural norms as it relates to the American family? Well, the, the family has always been the greatest impediment to the left's agenda. That that's been that was true for the Bolsheviks. That's been true for radicals in America. It's just it's been true going back, uh, you know, to time immemorial. Uh, it, it's because of a, a misunderstanding in politics. The left believes that the fundamental political unit is the individual, and actually, some people on the right believe that the fundamental political unit is the individual. But it's not. That's not a particularly conservative understanding, and, it, and it's also not true. <laughs> the fundamental political unit is the family. We are not born as just little atoms floating in a forest somewhere. We are born into a family, to a mother and to a father, hopefully, or hopefully our father acknowledges that and his responsibilities. And we are born with rights, sure, but we're also born, perhaps primarily, with responsibilities. We have to listen to mommy and daddy. We have to respect our parents. We have duties. We have, and not just to the family, but to the community and to the country broadly. Our, even patriotism is an extension of that filial piety, of that love of family. And so the left has to destroy the families because the way that they can grab everyone and homogenize everyone and lump us all together, first they have to break down all the barriers to that. And the most important barrier is the family. This is why the left is so keen on redefining the family. I mean, this is why, and the left says that the, the reason it's trying to redefine the family is because of a small number of people who, who want to, for whatever reasons, their sexual desires or their ideological desires. But it's not about that. The, the left is really just using the, those kind of fashionable movements to get at their real goal that they've had for centuries, which is to break down that family. That's why we really need to defend that. I think we're seeing now, if you tune into the NCAA women's swimming tournament, you'll see that men and women really are different when they stand next to each other on a podium. You'll, you'll see that, and, and you know this, if you've ever had a baby, if you've ever been a baby, you will know that we get different things from mommy and daddy. Mommy and daddy are not the same. They're not indiscernible. They're not you know, able to be switched out. And we need them both. And, and that's how you have a functioning society. And, and now we're told that masculinity is toxic femininity doesn't exist, the family is re regressive and retrograde, and we, and we all need to, I don't know what, go live in the metaverse or something run by our ruling elites. That's not true. We, and, and by the way, if we want to have a coherent conservative political order, we have to live that too. It's good to tell people to go to church. It's good to tell people to, I don't know, pay their taxes or start a business. That's all good. 
but if you want credibility, you've got to be doing those sorts of things too. And so I, I go back to the Michael Jackson rule all the time. You do have to start with the man in the mirror. That will give you confidence and credibility. And then you can't just stop there. It's not merely saying in my own private life, I'm going to do this. We need to make that public too. There is a, a, a better way of life than what we're living in right now. Okay, there, there, there have been better times, okay? And, and uh, so if we want a flourishing society, we need to not just merely reserve those behaviors for ourselves. We need to bring them to the political order. And I have to tell you, it's truly not just flattery. You are doing that. I mean, you you are leading the way. You and, and the rest of the Florida legislature and Governor DeSantis. I'm so honored that you would read my book and that you, you would find it edifying. Uh, but it's one thing to write a book. And it's one thing to articulate these ideas. It's another to get that done, actually effect that into politics. And it's really, it's a great inspiration from my also free state of Tennessee, but it's a, it's a great inspiration to people around the country. And I, I hope that what you've done there will be emulated. I am confident that it will be, because not only is it the right thing to do, but as we've seen with Florida voters, it's a political winner. Yeah, it, it really is, Michael. It's uh, It was great to read the book. Uh, for your first book that actually had words in it, um, it, was a, <laughs> it was a full home run. Um, I hope other people will, will do what we did, which is, you know, pick it up and read it, because I think in the cultural times we're living in, um, it's wildly important that we understand what's happening so that then we can do and go out and effectuate the kind of change we are here in Florida. Uh, so thanks again for, for your contributions and thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you. Pleasure's all mine.